Welcome to Real Clear Fetish Talks, Real Clear Play. I've dressed up for the occasion because it is episode final of season four. Um, so I will be doing a break after this episode. But I'll bring my guests in. We are at the end of the season, so we are going to San Francisco today. So I have my guest. Welcome hey. to the live. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, how, how are you doing? Doing great. It is a beautiful day in San Francisco, sunny, 70s. It's kind of perfect. Fantastic, fantastic. We'll jump into uh, the four standard questions and then we'll just see where the conversation goes. Okay. Fantastic. Um, what, do I what do you prefer I call you names, pronouns, and titles? Uh, just call me race. Um, I don't ever attach titles of any sort to myself unless I'm in some sort of a dyna dynamic with somebody. Uh, he, him would be my pronouns. Fantastic. And um, tell me a little bit about yourself. Oh, uh, I have been in the scene since I was 17 and going to leather bars underage. I actually was bartending in a sleazy gay bar, underage, unbeknownst to the owner. So I've kind of been deep in it from a very early age. Uh, born in Chicago, that's where I was attracted to leather at the infamous Gold Coast Bar. And um, I was pretty much of a lone wolf for a very long time. By that, I mean I, I operated very solo, no clubs, no organizations, nothing highly organized, probably until I moved to Los Angeles in 1980, uh, stumbled into an organization there called Avatar Club Los Angeles. And through a series of events, I just, I started to teach and I started to talk and I started to write about kink and the rest just kind of took off from there. Fantastic. So um, I've been doing it a long time. <laughs> um, completely sober, clear headed or social drinker? Uh, my substances of choice, should I decide, are usually pot and wine. <laughs> so that's, that's uh, uh, with rare exception, that's as strong as I get. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Um, what is clear play to you and why is it important? Clear play. Everyone involved in the scene whether that is a social scene or an actual playroom scene, because I think you, we kind of play in public mm. more so than most do with our dynamics and et cetera, um, that everyone is consenting and everyone is clear-headed and can make the appropriate decisions for themselves and others. That's clear play to me. Yeah, it, it it is important that um, it, I think the word of 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 the time at the moment is consent, <laughs> where yeah. when when you're not clear headed, it's hard to have a hundred percent consent. It's absolutely true. Fantastic. So you started on the kink scene at seventeen. How did, how yeah did, um, how did that come about? What what sparked your interest to start with? I have been tying up my friends and spanking them and doing things to them since I was eight or nine years old. 
<laughs> I had a regular a regular neighbor when um I was nine, he was eight, would come over to my house once a week and I would spank him. And we did that for two, three years. Um, I used to be the guy when we were playing kid games where I would tie other kids up to trees. And now, did I know what I was doing exactly? No, I had no idea why I was attracted to that. But um, it's pretty clear that from a very young age, kink of some sort was attractive. I also knew I was gay very young. Um, I was attracted to, you know, boys my age mm. by the time I was seven, eight, nine. Um, and then one day when I was coming up from college, I was going to, to university about 100 miles south of Chicago, which is where I'm from. I came up and stumbled on a gay bar called The Glory Hole <laughs> in Chicago uh, that I ended up working at eventually. That's the sleazy bar I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And um, the second bar I stumbled into by sheer accident, or maybe it was by pheromones, I don't know, was the Gold Coast. Yeah. And for those who don't know, the Gold Coast is one of the most infamous leather bars of all time. And, um, and I walked in and said to myself, I'm home. This is, this is it. This is what I've always wanted. Um, and, and I was 17 at the time. So I, um, it just always drew me in right from the beginning. What was it about, like, I know you mentioned rope, but was there any, like, particular gear you're mostly attracted to? Is it mainly leather your, your main kink if, or fetish gear? Would that be your main one to go to? Ooh, uh, it is. But I am always very candid and honest when I tell people that a lot of the gear I wear is because when you want to catch a duck, you walk and talk and dress like a duck. And the men that I wanted to catch, the men that I wanted to play with and socialize and be around were geared. And uh, I didn't have a lot of money when I was younger. And luckily at the time, so we're talking the very early 70s, mm. uh, there was leather and there was gear, but we called them leather Levi bars for a reason, because a lot of the guys in the bars were just there in a very kind of butch aesthetic even if it wasn't leather or other kinds of official fetish gear. And mm -hmm. I was one of those guys. I was one of the Levi guys. I was boots, belt, maybe a vest, white t-shirt, rolled up, mm -hmm. um, jeans, and um, kind of messed up Levi jacket. And that was my garb of choice for a long time. And eventually, um, I ended up very early on, when I first entered the scene, I ended up playing with a very good leather maker <laughs> and so <laughs> I ended up with a vest and all these things that I would not have probably been able to afford at the time and uh, and I feel really bad for young people today trying to buy some of the gear because it is not cheap no um <laughs> what I'm wearing at the moment <laughs> is probably the most expensive thing I, I, I own and I only got that recently and that's after years of saving up so uh, definitely, it's 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 a really expensive fetish. But if you get the right gear and the right quality, it lasts you a lifetime. So it's true. It's absolutely true. But I do try to be sensitive to um, younger folks and people that don't have tons of money, uh, allowing them to express their fetish in any way that that works for them. 
um, because I do I do think that it's 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 tough economically to to do some of this stuff. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I'm fairly aware that I, I wear something not everyone can afford. And it's how I'm being able to afford it. I have no, absolutely no clue. Um, <laughs> but it's just budgeting and saving and maybe just one less night out and once in a while instead and just put that money aside. So, but yeah, it's not, it's not all about the brands. It's not all about um, a certain look, especially if you're starting out. Yeah, no, it's true. And I, I, I encourage um, people to just sort of add as they can. Um, there's uh, the tradition of gifting and, and exchanging gear. And here in San Francisco, we try to do that as much as we can because it's an expensive city to live in. And buying the gear is that much more expensive because of it. Um, London and many other cities uh, have the exact same problem of price. So, um, so. I think as long as someone kind of makes an effort to dress in the way that expresses their fetish best, um, I'm all for it. It's, 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 it when you mentioned the whole uh, Levi guy, um, when you started going out and so on, it, it, it just, it reminds me of a little story. First time I was in San Francisco, um, back in 2010, we went to a bluff meet at the Eagle and mm -hmm. I think us Europeans, we're quite gear centric and like do the full outfit and no, like we don't hold back. And it's like, we've come here to be like full, full gear. And I remember walking in with my partner at the time and the room was just filled with Levi guys. And it was like, where are all the bluff men? <laughs> yeah. But then we realized yeah. actually Levi's and uh, leather jackets is fairly normal in the States where it's not something we see very often here. Yeah, it's um, Bluff San Francisco in particular has seen a bit of a revival. They've had parties mm -hmm. once or twice a month at the Eagle and um, they host a big dinner um, around um, Up Your Alley, a.k.a. Dory Alley Street Fair weekend. Mm -hmm. And um, we've seen a bit of a resurgence in full gear. That said, you're absolutely correct. Americans generally are not as traditionally gear centric in the same way Europeans are. And um, so when it's not uncommon for an American kinkster to go over to Berlin and walk up to a door and they say, you know, you're not really dressed right for this bar or this club. And, and I'm all about honoring whatever the, the customs are of the, of, yeah. the, of the era. But we warn guys that go to Europe that, you know, bring a good full gear outfit because you're going to fit in a lot better if you do. <laughs> We, we do go for the full Tom of Finland fantasy if, if yep. we can, absolutely, over here. Um, so, and, yeah. And, and Tom would love that. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I'm sure he would absolutely love it. It's, it's definitely in his spirit that we do it over yeah. here. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, I have one of his drawings now from the, um, our poster from Backstreet now. Unfortunately, our last standing leather club here in London closed recently, uh, the Backstreet. I know. So it's really, really sad. It is sad. And believe me, the Americans were sad too, because that's where they liked to go when they, when they went. And um, speaking of Tom, right behind here is um, a print of the last image he did, which I believe he called a perfect man, which has no gear or whatever. It's just a beautiful torso of a man. Mm -hmm. um, Tom was an amazing guy, a very sort of quiet, lovely spirit. 
that um, had a really kinky mind. Did, did you actually meet him? I did. I did. Down at uh, the um, uh, Foundation House in Los Angeles, uh, I, Dirk Daner introduced me. And uh, really nice, much more quiet and to himself man than I would have expected. But maybe that's the artist. Maybe the his kink came a lot, you know, came alive through his 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 pencil and his art. Um, but uh, yeah, really, really lovely man. Fantastic, fantastic. That must have been quite something to meet, kind yeah. of that legend. It um, it's, it's meeting an idol. Absolutely. I, I, oh, I, I would be starstruck if I'd actually had the chance to meet him. Absolutely. Um, so you say you, uh, like in your description, when you wrote to me, just like you're an organizer, writer, educator, speaker, activist, LGBTQ, lover, kink, polyamory, HIV, STI prevented realm since 1975. It's quite a list of things you do. Where, yeah, where, does, where does uh, this, where, where do you get to drive to do all these things? Because I, I do the sober kink stuff and that can be hard work sometimes, just that one little section, but you, you kind of cover a whole umbrella of things. Yeah. Um, I was kind of part of the gay liberation front when before we even had the the LGBTQ acronyms and it was just called the Gay Liberation Front mm -hmm. back in the day. So um, what I will call queer politics has always been extremely important to me. Mm. And so that was, that was concurrent with my leather kink life beginning as well. So I kind of came out of the gate, you know, very gay and very kinky right, right off the bat. They kind mm. of were simultaneous. And so um, queer politics and, and anything having to do with leather and kink and fetish. Um, I tend to use those three words, by the way, interchangeably because Americans tend to think of it as leather community. Europeans seem to use fetish more often than they do leather. Mm. And kink seems to be coming the universal. Um, so I kind of use all three interchangeably so I don't miss anybody. Um, and uh, I I've, always been interested in public health. So I've done a lot around um, HIV, which started, of course, early on because of the HIV epidemic. And, mm -hmm. and um, as a natural outgrowth of that, I became very interested in gay men's public health, specifically around STIs and things like that. I was a big national advocate for PrEP when um, before PrEP kind of became a thing. And I was being pilloried by the right wing because I was you know, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, polyamory is something that I've always been polyamorous uh, on in some way. And so even when back when we didn't have a language for polyamory, yeah. um, that was a thing. And I think leather families were kind of a uh, an example of that. And um, so when we started to codify polyamory, became non-monogamy, polyamory, et cetera, became a big deal and was starting to get more press. I became much more active in that realm as well. So, um, and I work a lot in local San Francisco politics with various candidates and I, I just stay busy. I just like doing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm getting the impression, definitely. So you mentioned like you got involved with the HIV in the, in the start of, I'm, I'm assuming in the start of the eighties when the AIDS crisis started. How, um, 
look, just let's let's do a comparison. How did you feel like? How do you think with like with what's been going on with monkeypox and how local health organizations are being treating it as as a gay thing? And, and it, of course, not the same category as of severity. No one's dying from it. It's it's unseemly and and not nice to have, but no one's dying from it, of course. So I'm I'm just gonna make it clear that's not how I'm comparing this. But you kind of think we're so far down the line, but now we have. Uh, Again, it's being stamped as a gay sexual transmitted disease and people are just not taking it as serious as possible that this can become a problem. How do you, how do you find that now after all the work we've done since the 80s till now to convert stigma and so on? How do you find handling that now? Because it feels like a repeat in a way. Uh, on some level, it is. Um, certainly, in some of the public health failures, it's mm. it's a repeat. Um, uh, you're right. People are not typically dying from it, and um, it, it certainly uh, doesn't have the ramifications that HIV did. And but homophobia is strong, and even though the demographic that is initially being most impacted by monkeypox is men who have sex with men. As we have discovered with all viruses of any kind, um, they don't stick to one demographic very long usually. No. So um, I think it's been a public health failure generally uh, here in the United States. And this is, uh, I happen to be a fan of the, of the Biden administration big time, but in terms of our health and human services or arm and um, Center for Disease Control that sort of initially was overseeing the, the monkeypox thing in the United States, I think they were flat-footed. And um, that led to them not being adequately prepared. That said, I think they're ramping up pretty well now. Mm. Hindsight is twenty twenty. <laughs> um, you I would also think am... they would have gotten smarter by now. Yeah, yeah you would think. You would think, but um, even even some of the smart ones aren't so smart about certain things. And um, I am lucky to live in San Francisco because uh, the downside, of course, is we were one of the United States hotspots for monkeypox. Yeah. But the upside to that is that they threw a lot of vaccines our way. And I don't know a single person in my inner circle who was not already vaccinated for monkeypox. Not one that I can think of. Um, and many have already gotten their second shot. So that's certainly speaking from a, I'll, I'll use a word I don't use that often, a place of privilege, because we're a fairly wealthy city with it had a very high got concentration of, of gay men. And because it was such a hot spot, they threw lots of vaccines here. There was lots of opportunity to get vaccinated. Um, and guys have been doing, they've been stepping up and getting vaccinated. Um, but all that said, there is a comparison. The the governments did not respond in a timely manner the way they should. And I honestly believe a lot of it is conscious or unconscious homophobia. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely some of the same stuff we have over here. I would say San Francisco has taken it much more serious than the UK has. We literally, um, yeah, it's only recently we've been able to get vaccines and that's, already run out for August, there's no none left. Um, so it's, it's, 
it's it's a disaster yet again Liter literally like everywhere else it's like well, it's a gay thing so it's not it's it's not so important um we literally have people over here that believes that it only affects gay people and it's just absolutely ridiculous the woman and when i got vaccinated i have been vaccinated um the woman in front of me um simply worked at a club with lots of people you know one of these clubs where there'd be raves and a lot of people and not just gay people with their shirts off and dancing and sweaty and hugging on each other because they were you know whatever yeah. and so um she was very clear she goes oh no i need this vaccine because i work around a lot of people where there's skin to skin yeah and so um i think there's an awareness that it can move easily outside of the demographic it's targeting right now and sadly may um in san francisco our numbers are lucky we're uh uh every week since july the case numbers are going down and i credit that to a great extent about some awareness about you know um risk assessment individually and also uh the fact that so many people you know got in line and got vaccinated the day i got vaccinated for my first shot was i don't know 6 weeks ago and there were over 500 people in line at 8 o'clock in the morning to get vaccinated on a weekday fantastic yeah. that is yeah. you know what it, it, it in the greatest scheme of things because we are engaged and because we are taking care of our health the straight populace are probably not even going to be affected that much from it because we are stamping it down before it becomes a problem it's probably true yeah i think that's an accurate um prognostication about where it's going to go is that because we we are containing it and i say that's because gay men do take care of themselves contrary to what many would like to believe mm. we were the, were the first to step up and get vaccinated we, during the hiv crisis we were the first to step up and 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 codify risk assessment and safer sex behaviors and all that kind of stuff um so we do take care of our own and ourselves and so um I think you may be right. I think we may be nipping it in the bud well enough, at least in the states I think we are. Mm. Um to avoid it creeping out too much into the rest of the population. Uh I don't know if if they have begun using the one fifth do dose protocol in Europe yet. Uh, but here in I the United think, States we I are. I think I think we are because we don't have enough vaccines so they would rather just vaccine more people than not had uh, like a, a smaller group vaccinated and they would rather have a bigger with a less vaccine yes so i think there has been chat about that over here yeah yeah they're doing it here and um it is stretching the vaccine to the point where everyone i know that's wanted to get vaccinated has been able to get vaccinated at least with their first shot so going back to like the hiv crisis how 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 where were you in the world when that kind of started uh, i think it's it's something that's very important to talk about and especially in the last couple of years with the pandemic and so on it's been much more on our radar and i think also it's important to educate maybe the younger generation that didn't have that impact of it where were you in the world when that started and how did it affect you i moved um i'm from chicago then lived in new york for a while uh, manhattan and then moved to Los Angeles in 1980. And so I was in Los Angeles when the HIV crisis really um took hold. I 
was lucky slash unlucky in knowing the very first diagnosed person that I was aware of in Los Angeles. So I was extremely um, aware of HIV or what well, we, we didn't have that name for it yet, um, very early on. And so I volunteered with the very first safer sex organization in Los Angeles, which was kind of how I began, you know, doing some of that work. But knowing the very first person that was diagnosed and eventually died uh, had a tremendous impact on me because I, I was aware of it in a way that I don't think many other people were until many, many months down the line when it became more of a widespread crisis. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's a little bit like with the pandemic. If no one had any effect from like COVID in their periphery, a lot of people were like, well, it's not that dangerous. I haven't seen anyone be affected by it. I can imagine having it so close into you from the get-go gave you, well, motivation to keep yourself safe and, and help as well. I couldn't imagine how that must have been. I also think that the leather community, the fetish community, the kink community, in the United States at least, we were on the vanguard of trying to help other people adjust their sexual behaviors mm. when at a time when we had no idea what was really going on except sex was doing it. <laughs> and so uh, being kinky, we had lots of options. We showed people lots of options. Um, some of the very first safer sex pamphlets and guides came from, uh, to a large extent, the leather community, or at least a lot of leather community input. You can do this as an alternative to insertive sex and this and this and all these things we've been doing for years. Now you can try it too. And so I think uh, the leather community, the fetish kink community in the United States at least, was very early in helping the rest of the men, specifically gay men's community mostly, um, in the beginning, uh, adjust behaviors in such a way as to reduce the impact as much as possible. So I was pretty aware of it pretty early and so were most other people. It's, it's definitely the impression that like a lot of the, like the first responders, if you can call it that, was leather community and the people who were the nurses were the lesbian community that kind of stepped in, especially at least here in, in the UK, if you watched It's a Sin, you just see most of the nurses that's portrayed in that series is lesbian women stepping in and helping their uh, gay brothers. It's, it's, it was quite eye-opening, especially someone with my, I was a child in the 90s, so I, it was on my periphery and I saw commercials for it, but it was not the same magnitude as anything. I just knew it was dangerous, but I didn't, I didn't maybe get the same um, dose of um, terror from it, maybe. Um, I, I, I think I mentioned in previous episodes that my first in, um, impression of HIV and, and, and hospice life, if, if, if they're at the end of the life, was through Beverly Hills 9210. <laughs> there's oh, an wow. where, where there's an episode where Kelly volunteers as a at a hospice for HIV positive people, and that was probably my first kind of thing I got thrown in my face when it came to that type of stuff. Well, I must have been twelve at the time when that episode came out, but it was completely inaccurate about testing and how long it takes and stuff like that. It was it was completely fabricated, but 
it was a very important episode because it, it portrayed that, at least in Denmark, it was for me. Um, related to what you just said, you're absolutely correct. Lesbians stepped up and took care of um, their, you know, gay men brothers and, in, in a big way. And it, uh, in every city in which I'm aware there was any kind of a, a true supportive presence, they were there. So that's absolutely true. And I think that that's well documented and, and we need to sort of honor that, that they, they did take care of us at a time that when we really needed it. The other thing is that because the Leather King's fetish community was, is, is and was so highly sexual, mm. we were impacted disproportionately compared to other parts of the gay community. So not only did we have the skill sets because of our kink to help people not necessarily become infected at the time. But we had a lot of friends and lovers and um, people we knew die. I mean, um, uh, it was somewhat later, but you know, my first partner died of, of AIDS. So I was very aware um, uh, on an intimate level of the, of the tragedy that it, that it could um, bring about. So I think we should be applauded as a, leather kink fetish community responding so well to it and helping others. Uh, but it also devastated us in a way that um, we, we hear all, you know, I'm an old guy. And so I'm always, uh, people throw around this word elder and mentor and all these things. And I'm not sure that that really works for me all the time, but, mm. but there aren't as many of us because so many of us died. A yeah. lot of people my age are dead and Therefore, there was a whole layer of the community that was gone and um, a lot of organization skills, knowledge, um, um, skill sets, you name it, went with them. So I, I think HIV impacted the Levitt community in different ways. And, um, and that was one of them, too. Yeah, it's it's... But as I said before, it's so important to share stories and, and thank you for sharing that. It, it, it does mean a lot, especially for someone like me to learn about the history and different experiences when it came to this. And I'm hoping someone listened as well on this as it's important. I just want to add one thing and that is that if, if anyone's wondering about whether they're HIV negative and they should go on PrEP, I'm here as a long-standing advocate of PrEP please talk to your doctor, please consider it. It really works. It doesn't have a lot of side effects. It really does keep you from becoming HIV positive. And as somebody myself who was HIV positive, and I have been positive since the mid eighties, and I'm, I was very lucky, I was a slow progressor. I didn't even have to go on meds for a long time, but I am on meds now. Um, if somebody does seroconvert, the wisdom now is absolutely go on medication quickly to bring your viral load down. It's it's generally considered through all the research to do uh, to help you in the long run with your health. So I happen to be one of the lucky ones that was a slow progressor and I'm healthy as a horse and have gobs of T cells. But I I, I realized that something in my genetics was just lucky. Yeah. So um, so please get on prep if you're negative if. You do tests, get on drug, you know, medications right away. Talking about PrEP, how, how, you say you're an advocate for it. How do you feel 
because a lot of there was there was a there was the people for and against because a lot of people maybe use prep as an alternative to condoms. Of course, mm -hmm. it doesn't prevent you from getting everything else. What what yep. how do you feel about those type of things? Um, I'm a very data driven person, um, and I wrote in some of the up. Um, op-eds that I would write with uh, 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 another friend of mine, a therapist here in town named Luke Adams, um, we would crunch the data. And even back when people thought people were using condoms, a lot of people were not using condoms. Mm -hmm. So you have to accept reality that a lot of people were not using condoms, even in an era when they wouldn't necessarily admit that they weren't using condoms. So that that's data. That's solid data. You can't ignore it. And I am absolutely an advocate for condoms for those who want to use them. Mm -hmm. We have to also be real and real understand that most guys are not using them. They aren't. And now that prep is here, they are not. And I'm not going to judge one way or the other, but I think that the vast majority of gay men are not that have access to prep. They are getting tested quarterly, something I think is extremely important. Mm -hmm. um, prep protocol here in the States typically is you have to see your doctor and be tested for STIs every three months, which is way more than most gay men do. Um, I'm, I'm a big advocate for regular STI testing. Yeah. So I'm a realist. I look at the data. I also look at what is the balance between pleasure and caution. And I think that everyone has a risk assessment. Mm -hmm. And many people have come to the decision that I'm on prep. I'm comfortable barebacking. I know that my partner is hopefully getting checked. I'm getting checked. It doesn't prevent everything. You can always have, have a blip, but everyone has to make that assessment for themselves. And I don't judge any assessment one way or the other. Yeah, I, I talk to someone who uses prep and I, I have made the decision I don't necessarily use condoms. If I do, if I'm with someone who prefers me to use a condom, of course I will use a condom, that's not a problem. Uh, I'm not completely adverse to condoms, it's just not something I ever use. I stopped using condoms in my drug addiction because it's, well, when you're high, you, it's, not on, it's not on your radar. and. And to be honest, before when I was still using condoms, and it, it sounds maybe a little bit silly, is I was so panicky every time a broken condom happened or um, it didn't quite fit or I forgot to use it, I would just go on eggshells around sex. And to be honest, when, when it kind of, I accepted the risk, not necessarily wanting to be positive definitely not i never wanted to become positive but i i think i accepted the calculated risk from it um especially in my drug addiction um i don't know if it was a good decision or not at the time but it was just what it was but it definitely gave me a bit more freedom a bit more sound of mind and less anxiety around sex where i had it before um prep i as soon as i could get on it i was on it because i was in a risk group how i managed to get out of my drug addiction without becoming positive i had no absolutely no clue um because i was definitely in a high risk group um but then again i always asked even at my worst with drug taking i would always ask my partners their status and in most cases if i was barebacking with someone 
I wouldn't necessarily bear back with someone who was negative that didn't know their status, but I would bear back with someone who was positive on meds because the risk yes. is minimal because undetectable is untransmittable. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. Um, we also progress in science and medical science so that people have better lives. And there are some, I'll just say it, some guys my age and older who were a little bitter that they lived through an entire era where it was, you use a condom every time or you might die. Yeah. You know, that was the that was the reality. And now, of course, with PrEP, that is not the case, as, as well as undetectable is not is untransmissible. So I think this is a wonderful thing that people coming into the scene today have these options. I'm not bitter at all that we had to make adjustments that they may not have to make today mm. or certainly have less risk around those decisions. The other thing I want to say, um, in case we we don't get to it is that the man I have collared for the past 10 years has been sober and I'm probably going to get his sober birthday wrong and he's going to be upset. But I want to say he's 38 years sober. Wow. It's a long time. It's 30 some. And so I am a huge champion of, uh, of uh, the sober community and the, the kinky, the leather, the fetish sober community in particular, um, because I think it's a good example of us taking care of our own. And um, if you go to International Mr. Leather or some of the other big events now, they didn't always have sober meetups, but now they have sober meetups. Or they'll have um, badges that will, will indicate that they're sober so that when you're looking at a guy across the hall and you're like, I'm, I need to be with somebody who's sober, they immediately can look and go, oh, that guy is, and they can walk over, say hi or whatever. So I think we've reached a level of awareness around how important the sober community is and sobriety is to so many people. Mm -hmm. um, and thank you for doing that. Thank you for being an example of that because we need more good examples of that. Well, thank you. It's, it, do you know what, it, when, when I started Real Clear Fetish and maybe also, well, the podcast I started in, in, in lockdown, mainly because there was nothing else to do. Um, I, I started, and I've mentioned this before, I started it purely from my, only, my, my own way to get back into kink. Uh, because I didn't know how to, because my sex drive and my drug taking was so intertwined. So how do you do something inherently sexual if you want to use drugs every time? And to be honest, the sober kink scene in over here is more or less non-existent. I'm not saying that they're not, they're not around, but they maybe not be as loud speaking as me. But that was kind of my drive. It's like, well, if no one else is going to be a role model here in, in Europe, well, then I'll step up. I'm, I have no qualms with that. Um, and I'm also quite an open book. Um, so it's, it, I have no secrets, uh, particularly. Um, things like this, there's things I will keep private. But in general, I, it's like if people ask me a question, I will answer as honestly as, as I can and I feel comfortable with. Um, and this is what one of my drives to do these chats because it's, it's it is important and it's educational and it's it's life affirming in a lot of things. Also, and, and I'm not overstating this, um, you quite you quite likely may be saving someone's life. So I will put I, I it is it is it is I, I think it's so important to have models 
And if somebody doesn't step forward in the beginning and then somebody else says, oh, well, I feel that way too. And pretty soon you have a movement, a community, a, 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 a sense of mutual support. Um, you know, if, you, if somebody doesn't do it, it's not going to get done. So thank you for doing it. And, and I'm not understating it. You are likely saving probably more than one life by doing that. Well, I hope so. That's kind of, I've always said, it's like, if I just make a change for one life, then it's all worth it, to be honest, all the work I do. Um, so you, you also say that you're an author. You have published books in the past as well. Um, and, yeah, and, I have. Um, and there was, there was one book that stuck out for me when, when I was looking at your um, page. Uh, let me just have a quick look. There was a book that stuck out because I was a little learning the ropes, a basic guide to safe and fun BDSM lovemaking version. Two. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, how did you manage to write a book about that? I think it's amazing. Um, when a book, I, I have books have always been a passion. I've mm -hmm. been a reader all my life. And so uh, I was looking at, books for leather people, kinky people, fetish people. And back in the day, um, my friend Grayland Thornton always says that phrase, so I always use it now, back in the day, um, there weren't a lot of really good nonfiction books of quality around BDSM and kink. And in fact, um, the the, manual that I first looked at was the, I think it was the Lesbian SF Safety Manual. Well, I forgot I'm saying the wrong name, but it was a, a book about lesbian kink and it was one of the most authoritative works available. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be good if there was a book that was kind of a gentle introduction to SM, I called it at the time, now BDSM is the more accurate mm. acronym. That um, was kind of a gentle introduction that appealed to people of all genders and all orientations and was very basic. And I wrote that and I didn't even attempt to publish it through the normal means. I self-published it. And it's to date, it, I don't have, I'm not privy to all the numbers currently in front of me, but I want to say it sold about 85,000 copies so far, which is a lot of copies of books. And a lot of kinky people out there. There are a lot of kinky people. Um, and when I was successful with that book, fairly, because I self-published it, uh, I was, my partner at the time was Guy Baldwin. And Guy was writing this wonderful column for Drummer Magazine. And I said, you need to put all these essays together in a book. And he was very reticent. And I said, no, 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 you need to do this. And so that became the second book I published, which was Ties That Bind. And then one thing led to another, and I ended up becoming a book publisher. <laughs> um, and I sold that company many years ago. But uh, books have always been a passion. And I've always felt that um, my press at the time, um, Greenery Press, which is Janet Hardy's um, press that she started. Uh, she's famous for writing The Ethical Slut with Dossie Easton, amongst it's other on things. It's uh, on my list to read. It's on myself in the kitchen to read because... Yep. It's, as, as you, you mentioned, Polly, it's, it's a great book about polyamory. 
um, and and I used to be in a in, in triad relationship, so it's it's interesting to maybe read someone else's perspective on it. Yeah, I've been in um, various configurations of triads and quads and things over my life, so um, it's always kind of how I've been wired. Um, so yeah, I wrote that book. I write a lot of other things as well, but um, in the in the kink world, that's the book I'm I'm sort of known for. It's it's. It, it, like like with the triad and so on it's it's sometimes when i talk to people and they start explaining their relationships i almost go a bit cross-eyed i it's not me criticizing anyone's relationship but sometimes it's like oh that sounds really really complicated i was just in a in a, in a relationship with two married guys that that's that was the extent of my polyamory if you could say uh where sometimes you talk to someone's like well i'm a pup but i have a sir and my sir has his own daddy, and uh, the daddy is now a slave to my other pop brother. And it, it just becomes like, you kind of need like a family tree to make sure you kind of get the whole dynamic. But I think it's, it's amazing and it's become much more popular, I feel, or maybe a bit more public now. I, I think both. I think, um, I, I mean, my own poly situation is I have a, a partner of 31 years, the man I have collared for 10 years has a husband of 30, 31 years and a boy of, of I, I wanna say seven or eight years of his own. I mean, yeah, it's all very, and we have interests on the side that are more than just play buddies. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely wired. I do think it's become both more public and more popular. Mm -hmm. I think when people are exposed to options that they didn't know were possible before, they consider them in a way they never would have previously. And then there's also the people that have been functioning poly for a long time, who now feel like they can be very out and open and discuss it with, with a wider range of people than they once could. So I think it's both more public and more popular, both at the same time. And um, if you look at the number of mainstream publications that have published some type of article on non-monogamy and or polyamory, it, it, it's astounding how popular a topic it is. It, it is it is interesting to see that it's it's blossomed so much and it's also become quite a big thing here in Europe with different types of dynamics and relationships now. Where when I was in a free road relationship, I almost got like, oh, that's weird <laughs> at the time. Um, but like you say, it, it's when you get exposed to the idea and it's like, oh, there's not, there is not just monogamy as an option. Uh, I, my friend who I was a, a, a good fuck buddy of mine from um, uh, Copenhagen uh, mentioned he'd been in a freeway relationship. I'd never ever considered that. And then I found the two guys I was with for five years and and before my friend had mentioned that you could do that, I would never have considered it. I would just been heartbroken that I couldn't be engaged with one person because he was married to someone else. Um, so it's, it, yeah, it's definitely like representation is so important and being honest and open and so on. It's, it's going to be a fascinating um, development to watch over time as polyamory and, and non-monogamy become more the norm, not, not, the norm's not the word, more an open option, unjudged. Mm. That may take a while, but 
when we get there, it'll be interesting to see where society balances. How many choose monogamy? How many choose non-monogamy? How many choose polyamory? When they have those options and they aren't nudged by religion and family and society and culture into one way of thinking. So I, I don't, that's probably not even going to be in my lifetime, but whenever that happens, it would be a really interesting thing to see and to, just where we're going to balance out when it's all, when all those options are on the table. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you also, you write a lot. You like write blogs online. Um, and, and I also had a quick lit, uh, glance at your Pinterest. <laughs> oh wow! Just, I don't maintain that very well. <laughs> no, but it's a very interesting Pinterest. If if anyone goes onto his link tree and look as it looks at his Pinterest, there's a very very pretty man on there. Um, yeah, and, there are there are. Yeah. But when I think and I, and I have when I think Pinterest, it's like um, family mums with recipes and and decorations and stuff like that. It's not necessarily um, fetish men. Yeah, well, I like I like my fetish men. Um, I was very big on Pinterest when it first came on the scene. I've always been a big social media person. And so I, I was very good about with my Pinterest for a long time. And it's only in the last actually few weeks that I've begun to kind of revive my interest in Pinterest. So it's interesting you picked that one out specifically because, you know, my Twitter, my Facebook, my Instagram, that are much more current, whereas Pinterest is a little bit. But you're right. Lots of pretty men. That's <laughs> a pretty men. But yeah, you, you are quite prolific when when you look at your link tree it's it's longer than longer than my link tree let's say it like that it's it's you you're more in tune with it than i am um and i i i mainly use instagram as my main source of um promoting stuff um but yeah it's it's sharing that knowledge online is is so important and and I, hopefully there is quite a few people who actually read uh, a lot of this stuff because it is this a wealth of knowledge on there you know i i always describe myself as um a generalist because even though a lot of historically what i've written about is kink i write and do a lot of things outside of that as well and i always say i'm a generalist um i i read i learn sometimes i write about it and that's so i there's almost no topic that i don't find fascinating um it's one of the reasons i started my Substack blog because I can write about almost anything on that. And I do. I mean, I just, you know, climate change, kink, you know, politics. I mean, you can, I, laundry list of things. And um, that's just how I am. I've always I've been a voracious reader all my life. I grew up that way. Um, only child, sat with books a lot. I was very much a bookworm when I was younger. And um, I find almost all of life fascinating and the desire to either write about it or discuss it or and, and on occasion it's something rises to the top and I feel like I need to do a project around it of some sort. Yeah, it's 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 quite fascinating. I, I need to sit down and read some of your stuff because there is so much to get going with. You also now do a, a YouTube channel called uh, the Guard Gar, Cigar Saloon. I had to get that out. It, um, it's it's on guard on guard cigar salon. There you go. There Say you that go. ten times fast. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did that come about? So during the pandemic, um, a, a relatively well-known um, kingster by the name of Mr. Christopher, I who um, has been a friend. 
Yeah, I've been a friend of mine for, for decades, literally. Um, we would sit in um, um, his partner, Pup Amp's backyard during the pandemic. And um, it was usually me and Christopher and Christopher's um, sub who goes by Pig, who's also on the show. Um, and occasionally some others. And we would sit and talk about all sorts of stuff. It was outdoors. We could smoke cigars. And one day Christopher said, you know, we should record this. And so we did. We began to just have chats, smoking a cigar. And it, it started with just myself, Christopher, and Pig. And then um, uh, soon thereafter, Graylin Thornton joined. And Pump Amp is always the production and, and the, the younger voice amongst the four of us since the four of us are a little on the older side. I'm the oldest, I think. But, um, and um, we talk about anything kink and to some extent LGBTQ related. And uh, each episode has a topical theme, uh, a, a social issue or something we want to talk about that's very specific. And then the conversation goes where it goes. It, sometimes we don't know where it's going to go. It is not scripted in any way, shape, or form. It is entirely off the cuff. We just pick a topic. And now we have a guest occasionally. So uh, people can visit onguardsalon.com. That's our URL. And we'll point you to our YouTube channel. And um, we actually have a new episode dropping this week, this weekend. So it, um, I, I think this one's called Ask a Leather Daddy Anything. But <laughs> oh, all the questions. Don't, don't quote me on the title. <laughs> Fantastic. And and just to like mention you already you mentioned Mr. Christopher and Pop Amp. Uh, they also do uh, another show called What's the Safe Word, which is spelled What's like with lightning. Um, which is a brilliant YouTube channel as well. If anyone wants to check that out as well, but of course also check um, on the Gar uh, Cigar Saloon as well. Absolutely. Before AMP, before I was, I was, I, I knew AMP. Uh, I knew about Watson the Safe Word back when he used to do it um, out of Seattle and, and he wasn't living here in San Francisco. And even then, it was the number one place I pointed new kinksters to go for information. And I, and I, I know it sounds self-serving because they're very close friends of mine and I have sort of an alliance with, with Watson the Safe Word. But to this day, I still point everyone there first because it's, it's non-sensationalistic, it's solid information. AMP does a ridiculous amount of research on his topics. I mean, like, he's just, it's incredible. So um, I, I do think, and, and even though it's skewed toward gay men, a lot of the audience is women, heterosexual, people of all orientations and gender expressions. Um, you know, so the material isn't just about Gay kink. It's about kink generally. Yeah. So I um I, I highly recommend it. Also, it's hilarious. It's so funny, yeah. and they do some crazy episodes as well. There's the one where they uh, order stuff from Wish, which is perfect. <laughs> it's so funny, and their reactions to some of the gear they get on there because it's horrible, absolutely horrible. If you're a start kinker, don't do it on there. Absolutely not. Um, but yeah. it's really fun to do. But it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, anywhere people, if anyone's see, uh, listened and they actually got um, uh, want to know some more, where can they get a hold of you? 
Um, I am uh, either race Bannon or Bannon race on almost all socials. Um, so you can uh, Facebook, Instagram, um, Twitter, uh, and you discovered Pinterest. I guess I need to keep that up now since people look, <laughs> are looking at it. Um, they can go to uh, my two websites are not that well maintained. I will be honest. I, I'm upgrading them. I'm about to retire from corporate life. Um, uh, next week, <laughs> and so I'll have a lot more time in my life. Um, so I'm going to upgrade both my sites, but Bannon.com and RaceBannon.com are sites you can go to. Um, and uh, if you go to most of my socials, my my LinkedIn, my um, link tree is there, and it will point you to just about everything. Fantastic. Thank you very much for coming on, and it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much for asking me. Have a great day. I will. Bye. Bye. So that was the last episode. I'll let you have a full look at my outfit because it's the last time for this season. So have a good time. Be safe and see you in a couple of months. Bye.